Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to our UCL Minds Lunch Hour Lecture. Uh, we, have, we are very, very pleased to have you all with us today. My name is Alfonso Del Percho. I'm Associate Professor in Applied Linguistics at UCL Institute of Education the, and especially Department of Cultural Communication and Media. Um, I, am, I feel very, very honored to uh, be able to introduce um, our speaker today, who is Dr. Birbul Yunmatz um, from UCL Institute of Education. She's part of our Center for Applied Linguistics and currently holds um, a British Academy postdoctoral researcher fellowship. And uh, yes, her research deals with ethnographies of refugee language practices in spaces such as refugee camps um, and refugee shelters, but also squats in Greece. Uh, her inter research interests um, are situated at the intersection between language and migration, language and humanitarian governmentality, language and international law, as well as the intersections of language ideologies, identity, nationalism, gender, relation, and social class in diasporas. Um, Dr. Yulmans holds a PhD in linguistics from School of Oriental and African Studies at SOAS, University of London. Um, she has an MA in language discourse and communication from King's College London and a BA in English and linguistics from Queen Mary um, at the University of London. Um, she will talk today about the management of unaccompanied minor children. And I'm really um, curious and, and I'm really looking forward to, to, to hearing your talk, um, Birgül, and um, I'm sure that we are all will all enjoy it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alfonso, for this very generous introduction. Hello, everybody. Um, okay, the so-called refugee crisis that peaked in 2015 brought about one million refugees, including children in Greece, of whom many have been trapped on the Aegean islands, such as Lesbos, after a new Turkey statement was signed in March 2016. This statement meant the closure of the borders, stranding refugees, including unaccompanied children in reception and identification centers. Initially, Greece was a transit country for many refugees who were planning to go to Northern European countries, such as Germany. UNICEF reports that 38% of the total sea arrivals in um, 2020 were children, among whom 12% were unaccompanied children, of whom some live on the streets and some unidentified by the authorities. In this paper, I focus on unaccompanied children because their chronological age, their child status is often disputed by the authorities, despite the taken for granted discourses of vulnerability and at risk. The case of the unaccompanied children is important because disputes uh, about whether or not they are really children have serious implications about their lives, including their detention. These implications involve their subjection to medical and non-medical procedures that could include physical, such as radiation, and psychological assessments for the determination of their chronological age in accordance with how children are defined in international law. When unaccompanied children arrive on Greek islands such as Lesbos, um, complex and inconsistent legal framework is implemented in order to regulate and govern the screening and identification of the unaccompanied children in the reception and identification centers. Authorities who are broadly involved 
include Frontex, Greek Armed Forces, Hellenic Coast Guard, Ministry of National Defense, Hellenic Police, as well as European Commission and Europol. Under international law, the main legal instrument in the management of children is the United Nations Convention of Rights of Children, signed in 1989. European Union law, member states and le uh, legal and policy framework uh, is a hotspot approach that limits freedom of movement. This framework is implemented by European Asylum Support Office, EASO, the organization that processes asylum applications when unaccompanied children arrive on Greek islands. Under the Greek law, this process is done in first reception service of the Ministry of Interior and Administrative Reform. By drawing on a nine month uh, long ethnographic field work, uh, conducted in a shelter for unaccompanied children, I explore how international legal texts that define the category of unaccompanied children and their management anchored in these texts go through a process of intextualization, namely the reproduction of texts that involves processes of contextualization, decontextualization and recontextualization across time and space. In other words, a process of um, centering, decentering, and recentering, when implemented on a national level by looking at locally produced texts that are in dialogue with the supra and international ones. This um, process in the everyday performances of the actors mean uh, transformation of the definition, leading not only to new roles and relationships, such as family relations, but also tensions, disruptions, and refusals that this legal discourse constructs. Now, the role of texts from constructing national identities to re uh, regimes of surveillance to asylum decisions in terms of credibility of asylum seekers in relation to the asylum interviews, the labeling of the subjects such as the learning disabled students, master scripts have power and authority on individuals. Although authoritative legal texts have fixed meanings, uh, they also travel and their meanings change through processes of decontextualization and recontextualization when implemented on the ground. Now, the change in economic, social and political circumstances of pre-industrial, industrial and mid 20th century have shaped the conception of childhood as a distinct period of life. In the West, prior to the 16th century, there was no conceptualization of the childhood. Children were properties of their parents, both legally and socially. During 17th and 18th centuries, the liberals and the pre-romantics of these eras attempted to conceptualize children as adults-to-be, or um, they were concerned with children's processes of growing up. The romantics attributed values such as purity and innocence to the figure of the child. It was actually child labor during industrial period, 19th century to mid 20th century that gave rise to the conceptualization of childhood as a vulnerable, distinct period of life in the Western world. With these developments, the state and philanthropists became the main guarantors of children's rights. Only in the 20th century, children were legally recognized as persons. This recognition of the child as a person was followed by the invention of children's rights that was demarcated by World War II, where human rights ideals inscribed into the United Nations Charter and Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948 that established a basis for defining the human rights for children. Before the General Assembly adopted the UNCRC in 1989, the UN adopted the Declaration of the Rights of the Child in 1959, which had a restricted conception of the rights. But the growing importance of children's rights was articulated internationally in the 20th century as part of Western ideals in the treatment of children. 
medical developments such as vaccinations, lowering infant and child mortality rates throughout the century also contributed to the rights of children. French historian Philip Aries in his seminal work, Centuries of Childhood, argues that the concept of childhood was invented um, by the modern society. Now, the concept of childhood was not sentimental. In fact, high mortality rates of infants and children discouraged parents from investing emotionally in children. With capitalism and most recently neoliberalism, children's welfare became important for the Western world. UNCRC in this regard, in a nutshell, protects children's basic care, welfare and health, education, cultural activities, as well as special protection measures for refugee children, children in armed conflicts, child labor, drug abuse, trafficking, and other kinds of exploitation. Therefore, child, childhood is a speculative temporality resulting in antagonistic relation, uh, relationalities that are not only situated in the domain of child-adult relationships, but also in the realm of discourse constructing innocent versus racialized, doubtful, dangerous, um, and speculated children. With these historical developments in the West, definitions were invented and codified in international law to protect children globally. The invention of this international legal framework is important for the analysis I do here because it creates a discourse of authority in terms of defining the unaccompanied children. Now, the UNCRC that I base my analysis on was written under these socio-historical conditions and the UNCRC 2005, the general comment on the situation of unaccompanied children, was written um, specially for the management of uh, the unaccompanied children by international law and EU and policy framework, as well as the domestic legal policies and legislations. This convention provides legal framework to the governments to govern children in their best interests. This legal framework mobilizes a discourse of authority about the unaccompanied children and their management in the asylum system. In the context of Greece, the main actors who implement this definition are UNHCR, UNICEF, EASO, IOM, in collaboration with international NGOs, uh, who are the main uh, NGOs uh, dealing with the unaccompanied children's asylum cases. Most legal texts that concern the unaccompanied children take these conventions as their point of reference in the humanitarian world. Now, as you can see on the screen, the UNCRC uh, has 54 articles concerning children. The definition of the child in Article 1 highlights that a child as a human being in reference to her or his age that is ought to be below 18. The definition of the child according to the convention conceptualizes the child as a universal legal category historically understood as properties of their parents. The recognition of the child as a human being lies in the long history and development of developmental psychology, pediatrics, socialization theory, and childhood studies. This taken for granted immaturity not only comes as deviance in relation to the category of adults that is absent in the definition and plays a big role in the assessment of a child's chronological age, is however articulated in the UNCRC 2005 that concerns the unaccompanied children. 16 years later, UNCRC was written specifically for the rights and the management of unaccompanied children who are described as particularly vulnerable. The convention conceptualizes unaccompanied and separated children outside their country of origin due to reasons of pers persecution of the child or the parents, international conflict and civil war, trafficking in various contexts and forms, including sale by parents and the search for better economic opportunities. Country of origin does not appear in the definition and only cared for and separated from adults are mentioned, positioning the unaccompanied child 
in this constellation of words. Compared to the UNCRC, uh, U, U, UNCRC 1989, um, UNCRC 2005 is more specific in the way in which it is structured and subsectioned. The convention has 99 articles involving seven specific subsections, uh, definitions, applicable principles, family reunification, and so on. Although family as the natural environment of the child is mentioned in UNCRC 1989, it is not emphasized in the definition of the child, but it is stressed in the definition of the unaccompanied child in this particular convention. This implies a triad of child-state capital relations that, uh, that is, uh, the state is responsible in these in the absence of the parents or adults. And for this to happen, a care infrastructure needs to be put into place where applicable. The third definition by EASO, who deals with the asylum cases of the unaccompanied children, stresses the territory of, member, of the member states, implying the existence of the unaccompanied children in relation to borders. This process of decontextualization from human being to separated from family or not cared for by adults turned the unaccompanied child into a border crossing issue, someone on the EU territory giving a new legal meaning to the unaccompanied children, which is implemented by Dublin regulation. This has implications as the unaccompanied children are registered as unaccompanied even when they are with their families. <clears throat> this is done to avoid congestion in registration centers on islands. Paradoxically, when these legal definitions circulate in humanitarian protection, the definition of the child is recontextualized multiple times through the asylum procedures, turning children into juridical, medical, speculative um, subjects. In order to qualify as an asylum-seeking unaccompanied child, a child has to exhibit a certain psychological, emotional, and physical, also developmental behavior that is tested by experts who work in the asylum system to prove that they are under 18. This principle, in a nutshell, means a rights-based approach, engaging all actors to secure the holistic physical psychological, moral, and spiritual integrity um, of the child and promote his or human, uh, her, her human dignity. <clears throat> the implications of these definitions that denote the children as legal, psychological, and biometric surveillance subjects, along with the regulations in determining a child's legal case in the asylum uh, system subjects her or him from diagnostic to symptomatic um, subjects, medicalized objects who have to prove whether they are really a child as well as their family links in order to qualify for relocation under Dublin III. This is a legal instrument that determines which EU member state will decide an asylum claim upon the arrival of a migrant on EU territories. Greece has been implementing this regulation in the management of the unaccompanied children. What Dublin III adds to the international legal framework is that it sets out practical procedures about which EU country will examine the asylum application of an unaccompanied uh, child, which means they have to have evidence of family links through documentation, as well as blood tests and DNA tests. Now, this procedures also involve, um, implements Eurodac 2 regulation, which is the pan-European fingerprinting database of asylum claimants and defined, uh, and defined categories of third country nationals who have entered the EU illegally and are at least um, 14 years of age. Now, before I explore how international law is contextualized on a low level, in, um, that's national level in Greece, it's worth mentioning how the treaties and reports are produced and mobilized. 
The United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child that is uh, composed of experts is responsible for supervising and implementing the UNCRC by the states who ratified it. The UNCRC is an international human rights treaty written specifically to protect the rights of children, broadly encompassing articles about non-discrimination, best interest of the child, life, survival and development, views given uh, due weight. Governments have obligations to report and appear before the United Nations Committee on the Rights of the Child periodically every five years about their progress to be examined, how they implement the treaty. The reports written by governments about their progress in implementing the treaty have to be supplemented with reports of non-governmental organizations. The United Nations Committee then makes recommendations called concluding observations that are implemented with implementations for each state and these are shared on their official um, websites. The ultimate goal of the treaties is that children are right holders and states are duty bearers to protect children globally. But the convention, UNCRC, uh, the is not fully implemented in Greece. Now, the definition of the child defined um, in UNCRC, what it does is um, it, it involves um, showing uh, legal documents and medical certificates such as DNA and blood tests, as well as photographs and correspondence with family members in the member states. This national framework means unaccompanied children who arrive on islands will be registered in the asylum system involving an initial physical um, assessment by a pediatrician, followed by an assessment by a psychologist and social worker. If age remains unclear, then the law forces dental x-rays and x-ray of the left wrist. This framework also legitimizes family tracing for the unaccompanied children, and if their families are in country of origin, they could be sent back to the countries that they fled from. If an unaccompanied child's family links cannot be traced, then Greece has the responsibility of assessing unaccompanied children's um, asylum application. The definition of the child defined in UNCRC circulating in humanitarian world entails a process of the reinvention of the child, meaning uh, subjecting children to legal and medical procedures, especially improving their age in connection to their psychological maturity, dental and bone development, and so on, in order to legitimate subjects uh, in the asylum system. Now, this ethnography was carried out in a shelter run um, by a Greek NGO whose donor was a UK-based NGO. The ethnographic material that I will present here involved participant observations, visual material, including photographs and texts that I found during the everyday activities of the unaccompanied children and their educational and recreational sessions with staff. <coughs> So in the shelter, there were about 20 um, unaccompanied children aged between <clears throat> 12 and 18 from Syria, Somalia, Ghana, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and Iran. They were placed in the shelter by legal guardians. Usually these are public prosecutors and NGO people, including their legal representatives. The average stay was about 10 months waiting for family reunification and relocation. The shelter had a coordinator and education officer who was a teacher, a finance and logistics officer, one lawyer, two social workers, two psychologists, 12 caregivers, and five Arabic, Farsi, and Urdu cultural mediators and interpreters. <coughs> Now, the care infrastructure provided by the unaccompanied, uh, provided for the unaccompanied children is a legal requirement as stated in UNCRC. The management of children who stay in shelters involves 
care provided by staff who had expertise in health, law, education, psychology, translation, and cultural mediation. On the ground, this meant the expertise of social scientists, such as psychologists, teachers, lawyers, as well as interpreters, who worked closely with the unaccompanied children in the shelters were reappropriated in the intimacies of the everyday life that involved physical and emotional labor. The legal definitions of the child that I have thus far demonstrated puts emphasis on being cared for by parents, adults, or caregivers. Although the guardianship of unaccompanied children is scrutinized in UNCRC according to child best interest principle, the roles of adults, whether they are professional caregivers or parents, is rather ambivalent for unaccompanied children. This emotional involvement resulted in the invention of a family spirit feeling, uh, a family spirit feeling that was negotiated and uh, led to disruptions. So what is this family uh, spirit? The invention of the heteronormative nuclear Western family that is mother, father, and children, is anchored in longer history of how adults and children, uh, children's relations were conceptualized. Bourdieu calls this normal family as it is in law based on constellation of words such as house, home, household. On this definition, the family is a set of related individuals linked either by alliance, marriage, affiliation, or less commonly by adoption, living under the same roof. This discourse that constructs the official definition of the family, Bourdieu argues, is the product of institutionalization uh, and um, ritual, both ritual and technical, constituting the family by establishing it as a united integrated entity. These longer histories of how family is conceptualized as a contested and realized category whereby adults versus children are defined uh, to produce power relations, tensions, and struggles. The legal definitions in the international law that uses vocabulary such as separated and parental care constitute the unaccompanied child in relation to what is understood as family with the assumption that an unaccompanied child is disintegrated and dismembered part of this unity, positioning the child in relation to this constellation, normalizing that a child is someone in need of adult or parental care. Family in this respect should not be understood as a model, but as a technology, as Foucault uh, puts it, that uh, restricts and subjugates and it's a productive power machine that reinvents, uh, shapes and codifies human conduct articulated in uh, legal codes. Now, this mismatch between text and reality, or rather uh, delegitimization on the ground turned into taking up new roles for the psychologists, teachers, and cultural mediators when encouraging, motivating, managing misbehavior, and coping with unaccompanied children's moods. Okay. So when managing um, the children, there were tensions uh, occurring in the shelter. One tension was about um, how um, these, uh, th there was a mismatch between the, uh, the uh, how, what the law said and how the law was implemented on the ground. These tensions, for example, occurred uh, in house meetings where the boys questioned why they had stayed too long in the shelter to the extent wanting to go back to the uh, Moria camp with the assumption of being sent to Athens. Okay. So this course plays a key role in defining the figure of the child in care 
involving international law, EU legislations, and the domestic appropriation of the term, according to the most notable regulation, Dublin III, turning the unaccompanied children into symptomatic beings. The definition of the unaccompanied child goes through multiple decontextualizations and recontextualizations, turning them into diagnostic and symptomatic prognosis, juridical medical subjects. In the everyday doing of the caring of the unaccompanied children, this legal figure of the child was turned into a student, a younger brother, recognized in relation to caring and parenting practices. The legal discourse um, plays an important uh, authoritative role in formation of the figure of the child, the ways in which it is produced in relation to wider discourses of experts in their sets of legislations, documents, tests and assessments. This is, however, contested in the local practices of a care context. This romanticized figure of the child as a right holder and who is only someone under 18 is contested as a border crosser and asylum seeker. Further, this figure of the child is recontextualized in the everyday. Through my analysis, I try to demonstrate how the gaze of the law and medical disciplines in turn, uh, disciplines turn into parental gaze. This serves the function of the making of the child through a legal framework in humanitarian protection from supranational to local. This parental surveillance means the re-internalization of childness and how the child is recognized or encountered in discourses of care and how the individual is transformed from the figure of a legal child to the parent to the parented or cared for child. So this productive bordering, surveillance, uh, directing, and at the same time loving and caring power machine recreates, reinvents, and reorganizes the subjects over and over again through text, discourse, and the normalized everyday conduct serving the purpose of opening and closing the sovereign borders. These discourses have power in containing, liberating, sifting, and categorizing the subjects, while at the same time creating cracks, disruptions, fluctuations, suspensions, and waiting, and hence a cont uh, contractual relationalities between law, text, and the everyday that are pedagogical. While legal texts such as the UNCRC are produced to protect, they also violate, symptomize, dehumanize, and educate subjects through precisions of discourse, that is invention of definitions that reassign roles, not through direct violence, but through training the subjects to enter contra contractual relationships such as those enshrined in the name of law, in the name of care. Thank you. Thank you very much, Birgül, for this inspiring talk. Um, I'm sure that, that there are gonna be uh, several questions. So let's see what questions um, came up. Um, just a moment. So maybe um, a question from my side, Birgül, first. Um, I was wondering whether you can tell us more about this kind of conflictual understanding of childhood. So I imagine that this kind of this discourse is about childhood that were was mobilized were mobilized on the grounds clashed with other understanding of childhood that, for example, these children themselves brought with them or the refugees um, brought with. So. Were there multiple understandings of childhood at work in the same time that you could observe and what were they doing and what what would they stand for? Yes, 
Thank you for this question. Uh, well, basically, um, when I spoke to the psychologist of the shelter later on when the fieldwork was completed, she said, um, basically, these children have become adults um, because they have crossed the borders on their own. And here in the asylum system, we are treating them as children, but their experiences are um, almost like adults. So, um, and also I think there are different understandings of um, how, of course, um, these kids are conceptualized perhaps in their country of origin. Um, and also uh, the time period they were in because they were also becoming adults. They were teenagers, usually um, around the age of 13 to 18. So of course they had the desire of also growing up, but also um, their um, journeys, you know, crossing multiple borders have also put them in a position not to be like this um, Western um, understanding of ch uh, children as you know vulnerable, innocent, whatever. Um, they just had to cope with the situation they were in because you know they're in detention centers. So there were, of course, lots of conflicts on the ground. How children saw themselves as like becoming adults and how the um, how the legal texts um, conceptualized their um, age and also how they were treated by the um, caregivers. And so there was, I would say, um, confusion basically about, you know, how to feel as a child. Okay, thank you. So there is also a question coming from uh, the audience and I'm going to read to you and it would be great if you could respond to the question. So what the question is, what do you think needs to be done by the United Nations to improve the child refugee situation in Europe and the Middle East? Is there, yeah. That's a one million dollar question. I think Yes, it's important that there are these policies, legislations and treaties that um, have the aim of protecting children's rights. They're not there for nothing, but the whole um, bureaucracies of implementing these treaties turn children into uh, illegality and also bridging their um, physical and mental health. I mean. The treaties say, you know, it's important that children are, you know, safe and healthy and all of this, but the, their practices actually turn children into, um, you know, attempting suicide, prostitution, illegal crossings, and uh, all sorts of other things, child labor. So the, the, there is a obviously big problem in you know how the child is defined in these treaties and what is happening on the ground. Uh, basically, the law is paradoxically illegitimizing itself, um, and also it, it, it illegalizes the children and illegalizes itself. So the law is becoming unlawful. So, okay, but then, yeah, sorry. No, because there is a, a follow-up question that is just linked to what you said. So then the question, so would you then suggest that the United Nations should propose a new definition of, of, of the child, child of children? Um, so does the definition need to, needs to be updated? Maybe I think this age under 18 is very speculative because a lot of children, especially when after all these experiences, they, for, for the people who are assessing their age, they may look over 18, they may look uh, 21. And this assessment is done with a Western gaze and Western understanding of what a child looks like. And this understanding doesn't really represent children, you know, who are being racialized in the system. 
not like these white little uh, blonde kids, um, and how these um, definitions actually have uh, this imagination about children doesn't really match. I, I think because um, these treaties were mainly written for white kids to protect them, and suddenly now they're implemented to also um, protect um, refugee kids. So there is a whole, uh, I think, mismatch between how a child is understood in the West and the East. Um, so, yeah, this age thing, uh, I mean, it ultimately leads children to be tested in hospitals. I mean, this rate, they get a bit of radiation and, uh, and a lot of humiliation. And I just showed the photos of, um, you know, their wrists and also uh, other bones, how these are assessed, but it's also sometimes um, they, uh, the authorities uh, who test their age also look at, for example, pubic hair. They look at their genitals and also other indicators if whether they're kids or not. So, um, I think this definition implies uh, these medical assessments, legitimizes them, and it's a big problem, you know. Like, okay, thanks. So there is another question about resistance. I'm going to read it to you. Huh? Uh, so the question is, could you say more about how the tight web of legal, biological, and social features with which shape unaccompanied children are unmade, refused, and resisted. So is there resistance and how does resistance occur on the ground? Of course, um, there was, for example, one child um, who was about 10 years old and he was believed to be a lot younger. So he was going through a lot of these assessments, I believe. And he would refuse to go to the doctors. He would refuse to attend uh, educational activities. And this came up as like after, um, I don't know, an anger burst or something. They, he would, uh, this particular child would tear his notebooks or have uh, arguments with the, with staff. So they try to resist. Um, and I think there is also, not in this particular shelter, but there is a danger of children being trafficked or trying to find their own ways of leaving the country. So they might just escape, but usually they are threatened with like, they would go back to detention if they leave. Um, so, Mm, these humanitarian actors and children are in constant negotiation about their stay. But of course, yeah, they resist and refuse. And in worst case scenarios, like they turn into self-harm to, I don't know the psychological meaning of that, but it shows a lot of anger that goes towards the self. And so, yeah, of course they resist. Okay, perfect. Um, so there are more questions about solutions, right? I'm gonna read them to you. Um, so, um, for example, do you think the solution could be to have a more localized approach in terms of how the child is defined? For example, down to country, religion, or region? Hmm. Well, good question, but local means, I mean, Greece is kind of local, but it's also undetermined and we don't know how long they will, for example, be in this locality. It's only um, 10 to 12 months, sometimes years. Some kids, you know, get relocated and localized, for example, in Germany or Switzerland later on, and they start the procedure again, or they continue the procedures. 
So I think, well, because Greece is in the European Union, they cannot rule out the directives coming from the EU. So some of the regulations can be discussed in the parliament and there is a voting system, but some directives, for example, the implementation of you know, how UNCRC defines uh, the child cannot be changed that much. They ratify a little bit, but they cannot totally change. But I think perhaps it is time for all EU member states to think about this. I am not here to give a solution, but I think it's worth, yes, thinking about, you know, what a child is in the local, um, in the local context as well, because they are in this whole supranational, national, local, and all these levels of governance, which makes the situation so complicated. And, well, I don't know the solution, to be honest. Yeah, there is another question about this localization, right? And um, so I'm going to read it. Uh, the question is, you said that Greece has not fully implemented the UNCRC convention. How so and why did they fail to comply? Um, and will they be forced in future? Yeah, well... I should have given a reference for that. Um, there's like a whole um, chapter in a book uh, about why Greece um, is failing to implement uh, the treaty. Basically, first of all, there is uh, the infrastructure is not enough. Um, and because of all these, the involvement of like EASO, IOM, UNHCR and all of these organizations and people, um, Greece is basically um, supposed to do bits of the work. I mean, they can find the lawyers or um, put people in accommodation or whatever, but um, they don't have the full right. Basically you're sovereign, but within the EU, you're not that sovereign to do your own thing. So they try to uh, reappropriate the laws, okay? They say the constitution treats all children in the same way, but because it's such a complex infrastructure and such a complex governance, um, it's hard for Greece to just do their own thing. They cannot uh, decide, um, you know, this is how we're going to process uh, asylum applications. It's actually EASO, which is a European Union agency that is um, mainly assessing um, all these applications. So Greece is just basically hosting. Uh, Greece is basically being the gatekeeper for the flow of these people into real Europe. So, okay, so there are more questions about this kind of interaction between Greece and other kind of bodies. So I'm gonna read one, one of them. Um, here we are. So the question is, will children, because of the Dublin Convention, be forced to stay in in, in the first country of arrival, regardless of their linguistic abilities and possible friends in another country. So what are their conditions of kind of movement across um, Europe? When are they allowed to leave? Ah, okay. So according to Dublin 3, basically if a child has any family members, in another European state, and uh, these family members or relatives are willing to um, apply for family reunification, then a process starts. And this means, a uh, like again, 10 to 12 months of communication between Greece and let's say uh, Germany or Switzerland. 
And of course, some of the rules will be different. For example, in Germany, how they understand um, family reunification. Uh, it's a long process. And this is why all these medical tests are done. It's because uh, the country, it's called um, the sending country and the receiving country. So a receiving country can um, have sets of different rules and understanding or what a family um, relationship is like. And they might require photos, blah, blah. And this is how this is done. And if someone has no family members or no relatives, or they are not willing to go with their family reunification, then the child stays here. And usually what the system does is to make these kids to wait and wait and wait. And then they're 18 and just to dispose them because they become adults and now they can be, um, they can apply to asylum as adults, which is a different procedure. And in my opinion, this whole hurdle is really for making kids to turn into 18 and um, so that they are not recognized as vulnerable or anything else, and that they are not prioritized in the asylum system. And this is usually the case. They become 18 and then they're deported or somehow settled or they are still staying illegally with no status. Okay, so there are other questions regarding how these children are seen by different publics, right? So I'm bringing two questions together because just because I'm aware of the time. So there are there is one question about how are these children portrayed in the media? Are they seen as children? Or are they seen as a threat? And there is another question um, about how social workers in these shelters, for example, um, make sense and understand these uh, children. Maybe you can try to answer to both questions in the same time. So I think how children are represented in media is quite ambivalent and ambiguous because there is like this general public discourse that these kids are not really kids because they have, I don't know, a little bit of beard or whatever. The way they look is basically assessed from a Western gaze that they're not really kids, yeah, you know? So there is like, and I mean, humanitarian protection is always very, doing so much <laughs> ambivalent uh, stuff. Um, so yeah, there is this conflict uh, in public discourse, whether these kids are really kids or not, um, and how they look, uh, doesn't really match the way they behave. So if they were kids, how come they crossed borders? How come they can be on their own? How come their parents let them go? So all these um, kinds of discourses. Sorry, I forgot your second question. Yeah, the question is uh, about the social, I mean, you, you address now the question of the media, but then on the ground, I mean, in the everyday interaction with them, the social workers, how do they see them? How do they make sense of them? I think the social workers were mainly, okay, they were these experts who were supposed to, you know, do their job. Um, they were seeing the kids mostly like teenagers, you know, because they spend a lot of time together. I think they also see that, you know, after a while, th these kids are not just unaccompanied kids that they are also teenagers. I think I showed in one of the quotes of uh, one of the teachers that, you know, these kids are kids. They want, for example, um, advice on flirting girls and they're going through also a normal stage like any other teenager. So I think they were mostly very lenient towards um, the, um, towards the kids. But of course, they also have to take like all this statistical data about how they feel, how their education goes, 
because these are obligations um, that are required by the um, donors of these NGOs. So it's not just uh, the social workers making decisions. I think they had some space to be friendly and to be like sisters and brothers. I think this is what happened. But still that surveillance, the, the <laughs> that gaze, the expert gaze was still there. It's, it doesn't mean like this people have to be horrible people, but because it's such an expertized job as well, uh, it still doesn't rule out gov the governmentality part. So have you ever kind of experienced a moment where one of these social workers kind of responded and to, to the challenges kind of posed and defined by the media, right? To the way kind of the media see and construct um, these children? Did you, did you kind of ever experience tensions and also reactions and to, to this and, or? Yes, of course, I mean, they react to how um, all these legislations are done, how um, children are, I don't know, um, understood, uh, in in the media and public. Um, of course, there is like a lot of anger and resentment among people um, who work with these children as well. I mean, there is a big problem of like burnout and compassion fatigue and all, all sorts of things um, among people who work with these children. Because in the end, I think uh, this governance um, although there are, you know, tensions, disruptions, and all these struggles still um, make people helpless. Okay, uh, so there is another question that is a bit connected to what you already said before. So I'm going to read it now. So the question is, how often are wishes of children to be in a country X? overridden so have you experienced ever a situation where children the, the child the child wanted to go let's see let's say to germany and they sent her or him to sweden yes so dublin three basically okay it means uh, family reunification but it's also relocation it depends which member state is taking how many children so the ones that i know of the most of them had family links somehow or relatives somewhere else so if they don't have this and if and they're lucky to be relocated um, different member states have different quotas but they don't always implement this. For example, the UK said, I think they're going to get 20,000 refugees, but they only got 8,000. So uh, there is a share between uh, which member states are going to take how many of these children. Um, so it's unless they, I mean, if they don't have family connections or anything like that, if the authorities haven't decided, you cannot just say, I want to go to this country and you are sent. No, it's a very uh, precise and meticulous uh, procedure. So I haven't witnessed, but it um, might be the case. I don't know. Okay, there is another question regarding this um, Yazo. So the question is, is it right, is it correct that Yazo assesses applications regardless of of the situation on the ground. Shouldn't each EU country be in charge instead? Shouldn't the system change? Mm. So I mean, Greece has been defined as the last colony of Europe and fortress to, uh, I mean, to stop people going into uh, Europe. So, uh, uh, well, when I was on the island, EASO had, um, tent in Moria camp, and this was getting burnt all the time. So uh, 
there were so many fires like trying to burn Azo. <laughs> I think um, like Frontex also Azo. Um, it, it, it's quite problematic, you know. It's also patronizing, of course, Greece in a situation where, you know, uh, they have to also take orders from these people, but also on the ground, all these things don't match their reality. So it, it's a huge chaos. I mean, I wish that was the case, but um, basically EASO has this role um, to select and sift and categorize people because these people are not just staying, they're people who are going to travel. So they are controlling this, um, as well as Frontex controlling the movement of people. And because Greece is not like seen as Europe, Europe, it's just a fortress, like the, the gate to Europe. Um, they have these colonial practices, in my opinion. Okay, so thanks very much. We can't kind of take more questions because we are already over time. Um, thanks to all of you for having joined us. It was great. Uh, also, thanks for all the questions. Thanks, Birkul, for your brilliant talk. Uh, you can see uh, the upcoming lectures by visiting the US UCL Minds webpage. Thanks again from my side. Uh, stay well and see you next time. Bye-bye.